our wonderful creator. Father God, thank you for this day and this opportunity that you've given us to, to continue to grow in the richness of your divine word. Thank you, Father, for Jesus and the teachings that he gave 2,000 years ago that are preserved in your word for us to read and, and study today. Father, please bless this study as we'll be considering some important things about your nature and your love and, and your grace towards us. Let us be encouraged and edified and strengthened after this study, Father. Please bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. Good evening, dear friends. Thank you for tuning in this evening to study the Bible with me. I truly appreciate it. I do not take it for granted. I'm thankful that if you're watching right now, then that means you have a love for the truth. You have a love for God. You have a love for his word. And let's study his word tonight. Let's consider what the scripture has to say. We are in our third lesson in a series we're doing about the parables of Jesus. Uh, this is actually the fourth lesson, I'm sorry, the fourth lesson about the parables of Jesus. And we are engaged in this series because we want to stay focused on our theme as a congregation at Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. Our theme is experiencing the fullness of Christ. In 2020, we are trying to know Jesus better, to draw closer to Jesus, to grow in our knowledge of the teachings of Jesus. And what better place to turn to, to grow in our knowledge of the teachings of Jesus than his parables. And so, when you go in your Bible to Luke chapter 15, Luke the 15th chapter, this is somewhat of a lengthy chapter, but... It is important, it is important that we read it. It is important that we understand that I cannot say things any better than Jesus. I cannot explain this parable or teach this parable or even say this parable any better than Jesus. And so let's read what Jesus says in Luke 15, beginning with verse number 1. You got your Bible? I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. The Bible says this. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Verse 8, or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God 
over one sinner who repents. Verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired, him, hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. His father, but the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. What a wonderful, wonderful parable. Just wonderful. So, so powerful. The title of our class this evening is called Three Lost Things. Three Lost Things. We're calling this study tonight Three Lost Things because that is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Luke 15. In Luke 15. 15, Jesus actually tells three separate parables. And all of those parables are about things that were lost and then they were found. He tells a parable about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and another about a lost boy. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost boy. Now, 
like the parable of the Good Samaritan. We need to understand that these three parables we're going to study tonight are also among the most famous parables of Jesus. They're also very familiar parables. There are also parables that have impacted cultures for thousands of years. There are also parables that are, are timeless and they're, and they're precious and, and they're convicting. These are some very convicting parables that we are going to study tonight. Now, before we dive into dissecting the parables, let me just say that like with all of the other parables of Jesus, for us to be able to properly appreciate and properly understand what the Lord is talking about in these parables, we need to carefully consider the context. We need to consider the, the setting that these parables are in. What is the setting? What is the situation? What is the context? What brings about Jesus even telling these stories in the first place? Well, brothers and sisters, the context and the setting for these parables is found in the first two verses. To be able to properly understand these parables and get the most out of these parables, it is important to realize that the first two verses set up everything. In the first two verses, the Bible says again, now all the tax collectors. Now at this time, tax collectors were not received well by the Jews. The Jews did not like tax collectors. They had a, a true disdain for them because at this time, most of the tax collectors were were corrupt people. They were known for overcharging the Jewish people and pocketing the extra money. The Jews did not like them because they viewed them as, as in allegiance with the corrupt Roman government. And so people like Matthew, a man who was an apostle of Jesus, and he was a Jew as well, he would have been viewed as a traitor by most Jews. Most Jews would not have liked him. Most Jews would have looked at Matthew as a corrupt person. And yet it is interesting how Jesus picks Matthew to be one of his apostles. And Matthew writes one of, of the Gospels. And so it's important to understand that tax collectors, when the Bible talks about tax collectors here, it's talking about people that most Jews would not have wanted to associate with. People who were viewed as corrupt and sinful. It says tax collectors and sinners were coming near him. They were coming to Jesus. They wanted to hear Jesus teach. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to experience the fullness of Christ. And when the Pharisees, these men who were supposed to, to be devout religious teachers, men who walked around with their phylacteries on and they were supposed to know the law well, they were reviewed as holy men. The Pharisees saw these tax collectors and these sinners coming to Jesus, and they began to grumble. They did not like this at all. They complained about what was taking place. Their complaint was, this man Jesus, he can't be the Messiah. He can't be a true man of God because look at who he's associating with. He's associating with people like Matthew. 
He is associating with tax collectors. He is associating with sinners. People like us, the Pharisees, we would never hang out with people like that, and we wouldn't expect the Messiah to spend time with people like that. These men, these Pharisees and these scribes are complaining, and they're grumbling because Jesus is giving attention to sinners. They are grumbling because Jesus is teaching tax collectors. They are grumbling because Jesus is actually spending time with people that they don't approve of. That is the situation that brings about what we find in the rest of the chapter. And unfortunately, this is not the only time we find the Pharisees and the scribes making this complaint. Look at a few other examples and jot this down on your notes if you're taking notes on the outlines that are available to you. In Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 5, forgive me. Go over to Luke. I'm going in my Bible to the Gospel of Luke. And I want to show you a few examples of this same kind of thing taking place in the Gospel of Luke. The place I'm looking for is actually Luke chapter 7. I know I had you in Luke 5. Look at Luke 7, please. Luke 7. Sometimes I can't read my own notes. Luke chapter 7, look at verse 36. The Bible says this. It says, now one of the Pharisees, see, notice the Pharisees here again. One of the Pharisees was requesting him, requesting Jesus to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Notice, this woman is probably recognized to be a prostitute. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair with, with her hair, uh, with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So notice how this is a very reverent moment. She's anointing Jesus with perfume. She is wiping, she is wiping his feet with her tears, with, the, with her hair and her tears. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know what sort of who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Notice how this Pharisee does not like that Jesus has given attention to this woman that he says is a sinner. Now look over at Luke, the 19th chapter. Luke 19, verse 1. Luke 19, verse 1 says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. Here's a man who's not just a tax collector, but he's called the chief tax collector. He's someone who has other tax collectors working under him. He's also described as rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. 
when they saw it, when the Jews saw it, when the religious teachers saw it, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Notice once again, they're complaining about Jesus giving attention to tax collectors, people like Zacchaeus. Now I want you to go to the Gospel of Matthew. I want you to go to Matthew. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, look at verse number 9. Matthew, I'm sorry, Ma yes, Matthew 9, Matthew 9. Look at verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So this is the calling of Matthew the apostle. That it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his apostles. So notice how Matthew throws a big party for Jesus at his house, and a lot of his tax collector friends are there. And Jesus is eating with them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. So notice, this, this is happening over and over again. Beyond just what we find in Luke chapter 15, beyond what we find in that chapter, the Pharisees and the scribes grumble throughout Jesus' ministry because he, the Lord, spent time, he gave attention, he, he gave teaching and attention to tax collectors and sinners. We find that in Matthew chapter 9. Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 19, here in Luke 15. This parable was told, these three parables, I'm sorry, these three parables in Luke 15 were told in response to the complaint of the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus was a man who received sinners and ate with them. Jesus told these three parables in an effort to expose the corruptness of these men to educate them on the work of the Messiah, to help them understand why he was spending time with these people. He was not spending time with these people so that their bad habits could rub off on him. Instead, he was spending time with them because they needed him. Jesus told these parables in response to the complaint of the Pharisees and the scribes, and the lesson in each one of these parables is the same. Each parable shows the joy found in heaven when a sinner repents and comes back to God. That's the main thing that I want you to remember tonight. These three parables are designed to teach that lesson. And so let's start with the first parable. We want to just break these down as quick as we can. And I want to really emphasize the main point that the Lord is teaching in them. The first parable Jesus told is in the first seven verses of the chapter. Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. There Jesus tells a parable about a man, a shepherd. And he's got a hundred sheep. He's got a big flock. But one of the sheep, one of the hundred was lost, and it needed to be found. Now, instead of saying, well, you know, I still got 99, I still got a pretty large flock, the shepherd actually leaves the 99 
And he goes out and he searches diligently for the one sheep. That one sheep meant a lot to him, even though he still had 99. When he finally, finally found that one sheep, Jesus says he laid it on his shoulders rejoicing. He celebrated finding that one sheep. He had great joy and happiness in his heart over finding that one sheep. In fact, not only did he rejoice after finding that one sheep, but he called his neighbors and his friends to his house, and they all rejoiced. They all celebrated the fact that this shepherd found one lost sheep. This parable is really not about shepherding and sheep. Instead, it's about souls. It's about demonstrating the infinite value of every single soul. It declares emphatically to us that every single soul, every person on this planet, every person to have ever lived has great value in the eyes of God. That's the point. And it's important that we always remember that because maybe so, maybe too often we don't think of it that way. You know, so often when we, when we talk about the death of Jesus, we talk about how he died for the whole world. And that's true. That is so true. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is true that Jesus died for the whole world. We need to preach that. We need to teach that. We need to understand that. But while that is true, we also don't ever need to forget to personalize the death of Jesus. While it is true that Jesus did die for the whole world, we also never need to forget. I never need to forget. You never need to forget that Jesus also died for you. He died for you as an individual. He died for you as a person. He loved you enough as an individual to give up his life on the cross. You know, maybe if we thought of the sacrifice of Jesus in more, in more of a personal way, maybe that would impact our lives a little bit more. Maybe that would discourage us more from committing sin and hurting God when we truly recognize and understand that while Jesus did die for the whole world, he also died for me as an individual. And so, that's the parable of the lost sheep. We move on now to the lost coin. In this parable, which is found in verses 8 through 10, it has the same point as the previous one. It's about a woman who has a very valuable coin. She has... Ten silver coins. And she loses just one of them. She loses one of ten coins. And instead of saying, well, it's just one coin, no big deal, I still got nine. No, this woman, she, she searches all over the place for this one coin. She searches diligently for this one coin. She lit a lamp and looked in the dark corners of her house. She swept the house. She did everything she could, turned over tables, turned over the seats, everything she could, picked up rugs, looked everywhere for this one coin. And when she finally, finally found this one coin, 
Jesus says, she rejoiced. Like the shepherd in the previous parable, this woman celebrated. She even threw a party. She called her friends and her neighbors to her home to celebrate with her because she found one lost coin, even though she still had nine. Again, the point of the parable is the same as the previous. The point of the parable is one soul. One soul has great value in the eyes of God. One soul, my soul, your soul, our souls have great value in the eyes of the creator. Every sinner needs to be found. It doesn't matter if God has a million people in his kingdom right now. He wants every person in his kingdom. He wants every person to come to him. If, if, there's only one person on the planet. If there happened to come a time, which there won't be, but let's say hypothetically, if there happened to come a time when everybody on the planet was part of the kingdom of God except one person, God would still want that one person. Every soul means a lot to God. And that's why Jesus came to the earth. Luke 19.10, Jesus said when he was answering the people as to why he was spending time with Zacchaeus. He says, because I came in to seek and save that which was lost. That was his purpose, to seek and to save the lost. The lost there is a reference to every lost person. Not just the Jews, not just me and you, but everyone. Jesus wants everyone to be saved. We see that in, this, in these two parables we've studied so far. But let's now get to, to the big one. The one that is called the lost boy. You may be more familiar with the title, the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son, the lost boy parable. That's found in verses 11 through 32. Let's summarize what's going on in this parable. We got a father. Seems to be a wealthy man. He's got two sons. He has two sons. And we're actually introduced to the youngest one first. We don't get familiar with the older one till the end of the story. The focus in the beginning is the younger son. The younger son seems to be immature. He seems to be impatient. And ultimately, he's a wasteful son. He wants his inheritance early. Being the younger son meant that he probably would get a third of the inheritance left by the father. The older brother, according to what is found in the law of Moses, would have gotten a double portion. He would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son would have only gotten a third, but it still would have been a lot because, again, again it appears that, that their father is a very wealthy man. And so he doesn't want to wait until his father dies to get his inheritance. He wants it now, and he wants it because, like a lot of young folks, he, he wants to go see what the world is like. He wants to go live it up. He wants to go and, and experience what he thinks life has to offer. And so his father gives him his inheritance early. 
And once he receives his inheritance early, he goes to a far country, the Bible says, and his, he lets his passions run wild. We learn later in the chapter that he goes out and he, and he wastes much of his money on prostitutes. He wastes his, inherit, his inheritance on sinful and ungodly living and eventually, like what, what happens with money all the time, it runs out. This young man got his inheritance early. He used it on prostitutes and other kinds of sinful living. And eventually the money ran out. And when a famine occurred in that country he was in, he became impoverished. He was in a bad situation. His life really got messed up. In fact, the scripture says that while impoverished, he got to the point to where he was eating with the pigs, with the swine. That would have been a very degrading thing for any Jewish person to do, to be eaten with pigs. Eventually, the younger brother, the Bible says, came to his senses. He came to his senses. He realized what a fool he had been. He realized how good he had it when he was with his father. He realized that this deal he had made with the devil, it was not worth it. He realized that when he compared his current circumstances to even his father's servants, they were way better off than he was right now. They, weren't, they were not eating with pigs. They were not impoverished. They were eating the best food, had great accommodations. They, they were way better off than him. This young man came to his senses. He realized life was better when he was with his father. And so he made up his mind to go back to his father. He made up his mind to go back to his father and confess his sin against his father and against heaven and beg his father to take him back. He said, Father, he's going to say, Father, take me back. I messed up. I sinned against you. I sinned against heaven. If you just let me be a servant. In your house, that'll be good enough for me. I'll be better off just, just cleaning up the crumbs if you let me. That's what he was going to say when he got back home. He was going to beg his father to forgive him and just make him a servant in the house. And as he was making his way back home, and as he got near his home, the scripture says that his father saw him coming afar. The implication of that may be that his father was, was looking for him every day. Every day his father was looking and looking, hoping his son would come back soon. And one day he gets up and he goes out to look and to, to his delight, his son is coming. And he's so happy about that. He's so happy that he runs out to meet him. And to the younger brother's surprise... The father's not angry. The father's not going out and going to rub his mistakes in his face. He's not going to go to him and say, I told you so. You had to learn the hard way. No, the Bible says that when the father went out to meet his young son who had been away living a sinful life, he received him with great joy. He showed him compassion. He hugged him. He kissed him. He put the best robe on him. 
He put an expensive ring on his finger. He put nice sandals on his feet. He told his servants to go and get the fatted calf and let's cook it and throw a party. Let's celebrate that my son has come back home. He was so happy that his son had returned to him. Go back to verse number 24. He says, for this son of mine was dead. He was dead. And he's come to life again. In the spiritual sense, that would be like a sinner being restored to God, being spiritually dead at one time, but coming back to spiritual life, being restored. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate, not rub the mistakes the young guy had made in his face. No, they celebrated. They embraced him. Verse 32, he says, we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and he's been found. The father's so happy. He's so happy that his son, his lost son, has come back home. And we need to understand that when we get to this part of the parable, now we're really getting to the part where, what, that Jesus is trying to emphasize. You see, the father's reaction is actually contrasted with the older brother. I submit to you that while the younger brother is focused on a lot in the parable, and while the father is as well, the older brother is actually the main character here. He's here for a specific reason. He is critical to the story because through him, Jesus is going to rebuke, convict and take a big shot at the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, while the father embraced and showed compassion for the lost boy, the older brother, he, he was the total opposite. When his brother came home, he was angry. He was resentful. He didn't want to celebrate. In fact, he went to his father and he pleaded with him not to celebrate. He said to him, I've been with you the whole time. I've never done to you what my younger brother did, but you, you never show me that kind of love. You never put on the best robe, put me in the best robe. You never threw a party for me. You never celebrated me. You're showing him all this attention. You're giving him all this love. He's gone out and, and wasted his money on prostitutes. But you never do those things for me, and I've been here the whole time. He's very resentful. He's jealous. He's angry that his father is so happy that his younger brother has come home. And after he expresses that, the father pleads with him to get his heart right. He pleads with him to see this situation in the right way. He begs him to be joyful, to celebrate along with everybody else, to understand that his brother coming home wouldn't mean, would not mean that he would lose his inheritance. He would still get his inheritance. He would still get to continue living in those great accommodations. His life wasn't going to change, but he should be happy because his lost brother has been found. His brother, who was in a terrible situation, has come back home. That should be something to celebrate. His brother coming home wasn't going to change their relationship. 
You see, the point of this parable is we as Christians, as God's children, we should always rejoice and be happy when sinners repent. It doesn't matter what sins or mistakes they have made. You see, all three of the people in this parable represent someone. The father clearly represents God. He clearly represents Yahweh, who wants all sinners to come to him. He wants all people to be his children. He wants those who are part of his family that have left him to come back home. The father represents God, the younger brother, the prodigal. He represents the lost sinner. He represents the child of God who has left the truth, who has left the safe haven of the kingdom and gone back out into the world to live again under the dominion and influence of Satan. The younger brother represents lost sinners and the older brother, he represents the Pharisees. He represents the scribes. He represents anyone who grumbles and complains and refuses to rejoice when sinners come to God. That's who these people represent. And I just want to close by saying that there are just so many lessons to be learned from these parables. This is an example of what I told you a couple of classes ago. Remember I told you how the parables of Jesus, the more you study them, the more you realize that many of them are like an onion. There's just so many layers to them. And these three parables are an example of that. These are onion parables. There are so many layers to these parables, so many lessons that, can, that, that, that we need to learn and appreciate. One of the main ones is a lesson about what really matters to God. What really matters to God as he reigns in heaven and what really matters to the angels of God, according to what we find in verse number 10 of the chapter, is not who wins the NBA championship. It's not who wins the Super Bowl. It's not these trivial matters of life. Instead, it's sinners. It's sinners coming to God. The Bible says that when a sinner comes to God, the angels throw a party. They celebrate in heaven whenever just one sinner comes to God. Those in heaven rejoice when the lost come home. And then another thing we see here is all sinners are loved by God. That's something we really need to appreciate. All sinners are loved by God. Those who practice homosexuality, those who are atheists or agnostic, those who commit murder and thievery, while those are terrible sins, and if people don't repent of those sins and turn to God, they will be lost. The fact remains that these people are still loved by God. God loves all people. He loves all sinners. That is one of the main points that the Lord is driving home. God loves all sinners. And then a third lesson is we need to avoid being like the big brother. As a local church or any Christians who make up a local church, they should not get into a situation or fall into the trap of, well, 
you know, we don't need to do evangelism. We don't need to try to spread the gospel because we don't want to get too big as a church. We're comfortable with our 50 or 60 people. We all know each other's names. We don't want to get too big. Christians who say that kind of stuff and think that way should be ashamed of themselves. They really should be ashamed of themselves. That thinking does not fall in line with what Jesus teaches. Jesus taught that evangelism always needs to be done aggressively because he wants all sinners to come to him and we should never resent when pews and church buildings are filling up with people who are obeying the gospel because if we start feeling that way, we're being just like the older brother. We are resentful and not celebrating sinners coming to God because we have a personal agenda. We're not getting our way on something that's a matter of our personal judgment. It is a wonderful thing for every pew and every church building to have people on it because that means that sinners are being saved. People are coming to God and those in, hell, in heaven are celebrating that. The question is, will we celebrate that? Because the Pharisees and the scribes did not. And so, that's the study about the three lost things. In our next study, we're going to move on to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at a parable in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. I hope you'll join me for that on the Lord's Day. I really appreciate you studying with me tonight. I hope this lesson will bless you and help you and just help us understand more about the grace of God and the love of God and the need to have the right attitude when it comes to evangelism and seeking the lost.